Well, good morning. My name is Matt O'Sullivan. I'm the youth director here, and I'm uh, really excited to spend time in the Gospel of Matthew with, the, uh, with you this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we're going to pick up in verse 47. And while you're turning there, thank you, Robbie, for dealing with the malfunctioning pulpit already. appreciate you <laughs> suffering through that on my behalf. It's not a happy. <laughs> Although I guess with a short guy up here, the pulpit shrinks. It's not that bad. <laughs> So as you're finding your way to Matthew 26, again, we're picking up in verse 47, and it's always interesting to me that when we, we arrive at a Christmas or an Easter sermon series, if you're like me, it can sometimes be really easy just to kind of cruise on through because we know this part of the Bible super well. Um, it's like, you know, if you hear it from Ecclesiastes, it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, I don't spend much time there. But when you hear these stories so often, we know them so well that we can almost arrogantly kind of think we've maxed out on how much we can learn from this part of the Bible. Um, I wrestle with that a lot myself. I'm like, oh, I'm in seminary. I've studied this part a hundred times before. But that's to forget that we're not just coming to God's word this morning, but that in truth, God is coming to us through his word this morning. That the Holy Spirit is here with us, opening our hearts and our minds um, to hear from God and to learn. And so we've certainly not maxed out on what we can learn. And as we look at the details that maybe escape our notice, or just as we hear this story again, uh, may we be alert to the fact that God is here with us right now using his word um, to grow us. And in particular, we need to focus on the way as we go through this passage and how Matthew continues to contrast our unfaithfulness with Jesus' faithfulness, our sin with his righteousness, our poverty with his provision. Because that's, that's the whole story arc of the passion narrative in Matthew's gospel is this utter contrast between our depravity, our sin, our utter just failure and Christ's faithfulness and his total love for us, God's people, and his total submission to God's will. And the closer we get to the cross, the, the worse our sin seems to be. And in one commentary, he points out that as all of this unfolds, there's really no aspect of humanity left uninvolved. So you have the Christian disciples who, who betray and abandon Jesus and, and walk away from him in this moment. You have the Jewish elite and the Jewish commoners alike who all, as one people, call for his execution. And then you have the Gentile Roman government who deals the death blow. And so all of humanity is coming together and is colluding as one in the execution of the Son of God. People from every background and every level of society. And yet at the same time, as we get closer to the cross, it's the, the brighter and the more brilliantly does God's grace and love for us shine out. And we are reminded of how amazing his grace truly is unto us who are broken sinners and whose only hope is in this very God-man whom we have betrayed and whom we have wrongly accused and whom we have denied. And so as we go this morning, we're going to discover that Jesus humbly and willingly submits to God's will in order to redeem those who betray him, who wrongly accuse him, and who deny him outright. And so if you would, uh, let's turn our attention to the text and get started with verses 47 to 56 and see Jesus betrayed. Hear the word of the Lord for us as people. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And they came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? 
But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. I've, I've always found it really interesting that Judas had to identify Jesus to the crowd that comes. Like, I always thought in my mind that it would have just been obvious, like, oh, there's Jesus. And I think, if nothing else, that reminds us, you know, Jesus was truly human. There wasn't this angelic glow about his face. It was like, oh, yeah, that, that must be Jesus over there. Like, you sometimes see in artwork. If he was, he was a real human being and these events really happened, and so as we're thinking about this, it would do us well to, to really try to step into the story and to imagine this unfolding before us. And imagine that there's this great crowd of people with clubs and swords. They've come, when Jesus says they've come out as to take a robber, that word could also mean an insurrectionist or a terrorist, someone who is trying to overthrow the government. And so they, they've come and they mean business. And then Judas steps out in front of this crowd and he greets Jesus so warmly and kisses him on the cheek. You might be at that point be like, well, dude, I don't really know how to imagine that. It seems kind of odd to me. Because in America, you know, a kiss is usually an expression of romantic uh, affection or, or maybe parental affection, um, but in ancient times, and certainly in some cultures still today, a kiss on the cheek was just a very warm and polite, friendly greeting. And for that reason, Judas' act here is it's just a dagger in between Jesus' ribs. In the act of betrayal, Judas is greeting Jesus with this just mockingly warm fashion. And his greeting drips with this ironic venom because the word he uses to greet Jesus actually is a root word for joy. And yet there's, there's no joy here, except the joy set before Christ in the long view of things, that this is all happening, that he would save us. But in the moment, Judas is breaking friendship with Christ. He calls Jesus rabbi, which, as we heard last week, indicates that he will not call Jesus Lord like the other disciples. He, he just views Jesus as another teacher, and he does not believe that Christ is who he says he is. And what's especially interesting to notice is then the way Jesus responds to Judas' chilling betrayal. Jesus calls Judas friend. He speaks so kindly to Judas, even though Judas acts so horrifically towards Christ. And Jesus' choice of words points out that Judas had been in a real and privileged relationship with Christ. Like he was one of the twelve. He, he had walked with Jesus for three years. And whenever you see Judas depicted in a children's Bible, like you know it's Judas just by looking at him. He's got that uh, pointy little bad guy beard and the beady little eyes. Like you're like, oh yeah, that's the scowling betrayal. That, that that's that's Judas. We we know it's him. But it's interesting. Remember the disciples; they didn't know which one of them Jesus was talking about when he said, "One of you will betray me." You know, they selfishly worried, "Is it me?" And in John's gospel, in his account, Jesus even comes out and says, "You know, it's going to be Judas." And the disciples still they didn't understand what he was talking about. And so it wasn't until this moment that Judas' treachery actually comes to a head and, and the character of his heart is revealed and they understand that, no, this is the one, this is the betrayer. And yet in that moment, even though Jesus has known this is coming, even though he knows Judas is not going to turn back, he still practices what he himself preached in the Sermon on the Mount. He still loves his enemy. He, even though he knows that Judas is doing something so evil that last week, as we heard, he said that it would have been better for Judas had he never been born than for him to do what he's about to do and is doing in this moment. But for Christ, that's no reason to, to act horribly back to Judas. He still acts lovingly and kindly and speaks tenderly towards Judas. And that fact alone is a matter of great hope for us this morning. Because if Jesus could speak so kindly to Judas in the midst of betrayal... 
then certainly Jesus can speak kindly and tenderly to you and to me this morning, no matter how awfully we may have been living. And of course, we could always ignore the offer of the gospel, but we can never truly say that God has refused to speak kindly or tenderly to us through Christ or through his word. But then how different from Christ we really are as we think about that kind of love. And we think about that kind of, of self-sacrifice because we don't love each other like Jesus loves us. We don't even come close. We are more like the disciple whom, in, again, in John's gospel is identified as Peter, who cuts off the servant's ear with a sword. Like we're, we're always ready to just have some sort of knee-jerk gut reaction. And if we're honest, those things always seem to tend towards some bit of violence or destruction. They always seem to bring other people down. They don't seem constructive. Like think about what happens if you hear someone you care about being made fun of. Like the first words out of your mouth are usually equally as hurtful. Like your, your immediate reaction is, I'm going to make fun of the person who's making fun of that guy I care about. Or if you're like me, someone makes fun of you and you're caught flat, but you don't really know what to say. You spend like the next six hours thinking about the perfect comeback and how, yeah, I really could have wiped that smug grin off his face if I just said this. But then think about, if that's true of us, how often we do the spiritual equivalent of lopping people's ears off. Because yes, when people betray us, we want to retaliate because it seems so satisfying. It feels so good in our flesh. But all that amounts to is just more of the same, more violence, more destruction. The world is so weary of and we lop off any chance of actually sharing the gospel in a fruitful way with people who probably really need to hear it. And so we see with Calvin, as he says, that it's again evident that we are much more courageous and ready for fighting and for bearing the cross. And yet Christ, he calls us to come and to deny ourselves, to follow after him. He bids us to come and die unto ourselves, to die unto our desire for retaliation and to seek instead reconciliation with others in a way that reflects the reconciliation he's accomplished for us with God. While we might object and say, well, that's easy for Jesus to say. He's Jesus and apparently had all these angels. I mean, it was more than 70,000 angels he's talking about having access to here. It's a lot. And yet, that would be to forget that he has given us the Holy Spirit. He's not calling us to do this on our own strength. He stands by with us, ready to equip us by the Spirit, ready to equip us by his word to go to pursue reconciliation where it is needed. The question for us is, do we think of things like this? How do you respond to people betraying you or letting you down? Do you tend to seek self-satisfying retaliation? Or do you pursue self-denying reconciliation when you are confronted with sin and evil? Because notice again, the last thing on our minds is reconciliation, but that is the first thing on Christ's heart. And it's the sole purpose he came to reconcile us back unto the Father. And this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, that's what he's actually invited us into according to 2 Corinthians 5. We are called in Christ to go and do likewise, to forgive as we've been forgiven, to seek reconciliation as we've been reconciled. And that has to continue to sink into our DNA as a church. That's what the church is. It is a body of people who've been reconciled to God, who are being reconciled to each other, and are pursuing reconciliation with what is broken and rent asunder in this world. And in the suburbs, I think it's really easy for us to do church Judas style. What I mean by that is we can just week after week come and warmly smile at each other and greet each other, and yet throughout the week just never interact, never fellowship, never remember each other in prayer. And I think, if we're honest, that's almost a kind of spiritual betrayal. Because we all need prayer. We all need fellowship. We're longing for that. And the world cannot and will not give us that in the same way it can only be found in the church. And for us to not do that, 
is in some sense, I think, to betray each other. Now, of course, don't hear me saying, if you're involved in fellowship and praying for each other, uh, keep doing that and don't, don't take that as a word of, of being beaten up. But it is to, to remind us of the, the great calling and the gift of that calling that we have as God's people, that we are a people of reconciliation. We are a people who love one another and who forgive one another. And we have reason to do that because we've been so wondrously forgiven ourselves. And we need each other to do that. Like it's, uh, I'm sure every, no family is perfect and every family has its story of brokenness or stories of brokenness. And one of the things I've learned as I've gotten older and grown up and seen more of, of the brokenness in my own family um, is that you can't do this by yourself. We need, we need each other in this. We need each other's prayers and encouragement and support and reminders from the scripture if we are to pursue reconciliation with those who have hurt us. And we ought to want that because there's so much more glory and beauty in a story of reconciliation than there is in one of retaliation. That's why Christ said, put your sword away. I've come to bring something better, something the world truly needs, which is an end to this violence and this destruction, which is a reunion with God and a reunion with one another. That's why I'm really actually excited about the fellowship groups at our church. I'm excited about the, the parents' fellowship nights at youth group. Like parenting, I'm not a parent, but I, I was a kid who had parents and who made life hard for them. So I can't imagine being on that side of it, but I'm sure it's hard. And it, it's so frustrating that, that in our world and in our culture, we, we are embarrassed to talk about the things going on in our, in our lives. Um, our families, our teens, our, our, ourselves, we need to be open with one another. We need to, to, as a reconciled people, uh, share with one another how we can be praying. And so that is what Christ has come. He endured Judas' betrayal so that he could create a, a perfect relationship with us and amongst us as a people. And so the question is, are we living that out? Are we pursuing it? Is it valuable to us? Let's turn back to the text and pick up in verse 57. We'll go on now until verse 68. And let's read now of Jesus' trial. So again, follow along with me. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two witnesses came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? I honestly think this is one of the, the, the weightiest and most somber moments in the whole Passion narrative. Um, because here, Jesus' captors take him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and all they're doing is they're just trying to find some charge they can slap on Jesus and, and send him off to the real hearing, which is going to be before Pilate. That's, that's where the real trial is going to happen. And Matthew says that they're looking for false testimony in order to put him to death. Then he says they couldn't find any at first. And that might seem a little weird. It's like, well, if they want false testimony, can't like any old story just 
and they just make something up, can't they? Well, in Jewish custom, they needed at least two witnesses to have a testimony that agreed in order to have something that would hold up in court. So they weren't pursuing the truth, but they, they needed to have some measure of due process. The question is, how did they get here? What made them so angry with Jesus that they would just assume before their hearing begins that he deserves to die? Well, Jesus, of course, had come to do what God had always intended for the Messiah to do. But that clashed with what the Jewish leaders wanted and expected the Messiah to do. And so they're doing everything they possibly can to defend their desires, to defend their vision of what the Messiah needs to do. They formed their conclusion before the trial began, and now all they're doing is manipulating and lying and deceiving in order to get what they want. And notice then that when in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, when Jesus stays silent in the face of such fierce um, affliction, that only makes Caiaphas even angrier. And so when he stands up, if the high priest stands up amidst a council like this, that meant he was taking over. He was taking charge of this thing. He was getting impatient. And so he exhorts Jesus under the highest form of oath, invoking God himself. And he says, tell us, are you the Messiah? Of course, Jesus in classic form gives one of those category-shattering answers. And he says, you have said so. And he's not just being a pain in the butt here. He's, he's very carefully very carefully avoiding denying um, that he's the Messiah. He's certainly not saying, I'm not the Messiah. But he's also very carefully avoiding a concession to Messiahship in the way that Caiaphas envisions it. He doesn't want to accede to the Jewish vision of violence. Because the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be this Davidic king, which is true, he's going to be a Davidic king, but they thought that meant he was going to come rolling into town and overthrow the Romans in a very violent, very suddenly victorious fashion and set their people free and establish their political dominion so they'd be on top. And Jesus wasn't seeming like he was going to do any of that. And of course, he had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He is the Davidic Messiah. But it looked entirely different from what the Jews expected. And so as he responds, he alludes to Daniel 7, verse 13, which was a messianic prophecy. But he actually doesn't quote it verbatim. He also draws from Psalm 110, verse 1. Because in Daniel 7, it talks about uh, a person like the Son of Man being presented before the throne of God, before the Ancient of Days. But Jesus says that from now on, Caiaphas and the high priest will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. That's where the, the Psalm 110 comes into play here. And Caiaphas flips out at Jesus, not just because Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Like There have been people who had done that um, in Israel before, and they were hoping someone would come and say that they were the Messiah and that they really were. The reason Caiaphas is so upset with Jesus' answer is that Jesus is claiming for himself a kind of power that belonged to God alone. So he's either saying that he is God, which he is, or Caiaphas is understanding him to be getting way too close to divine status. That's enough. That's blasphemy in their eyes. And so, of course, with that, then the Jewish leaders, they'd heard enough. They didn't need to look for any other witnesses. They're like, hey, we, we are witnesses now. You just said that. That's enough for you to die. And so they pounce on him. They spit in his face. They slap him and they strike him. And I wonder, does that phase us this morning? I mean, here we have the creator of the universe, God the Son, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made, who has already humbled himself beyond compare by being born as a baby in low, low conditions. And he's now being spat upon by the, the very people who are supposed to be the most learned stewards of the words of God that all point to this Jesus, the Messiah. And now they're anointing him with their own spittle. And this is, they should have been the ones who were, were ushering in his arrival. They should have been the ones who were bowing the knee before him. They knew the word of God. They couldn't see its fulfillment in front of them. And I don't know about you, but I, 
I'd get grossed out if someone spits a small fleck of food at me because they're talking to me with their mouth full. So I, I can't imagine just the, just the grossness and the shame of a whole crowd of people purposely just spitting the nastiest stuff right into my face because they scorn who I am. And yet that is what it meant for Christ to become a curse for us. That is what it meant for Him to become sin on our behalf, to take on the totality of the wrath of God for our sin in order that we would have life in Christ. And I love Charles Spurgeon's sermon. He actually has a sermon just on that verse alone, the fact that they spit in Christ's face. And he wrestles throughout the sermon with the fact that we just zoom right over that. And we don't let that sink in. We don't recognize the magnitude of Jesus' suffering, which reflects just the, the weight and the awesome wonder of his love for us. And Spurgeon, in the heart of his sermon, he says this. He says, could I feel as I ought to feel in sympathy with the terrible shame of Christ? And then could I interpret those feelings by any language known to mortal man? Surely you would bow your heads and blush. And you would feel rising within your spirits a burning indignation against the sin that dared to put the Christ of God to such shame as this. I want to kiss his feet when I think that they spat in his face. And I, I love how raw and real Spurgeon gets here because notice how his adoration for Christ and his love for Christ, it grows the more he reflects on what Jesus has done for him. And that's instructive for us because so often we forget what Jesus did. And when we do that, we often, unwittingly or not, wind up acting very much like Caiaphas in the Jewish council. What I mean is that we're so quick to accuse God of not listening or of not caring or of not understanding. We're so quick not just to spit in his face, but sometimes to question his entire existence simply because something doesn't go the way we wanted it to. And of course, I'm not denying that there are, there are real instances of pain and suffering in our life where we, we cry out, Lord, what's going on? But why would we think we can accuse God of not caring about us or of not noticing us when God the Son suffered in this way in order to set us free from death itself? Of course He knows. Of course He loves us. When things don't go our way, we, we can surely ask why. But let us not spit in God's face because His will is different from our own. And when suffering strikes, we may ask, Lord, where are you? And we may not say to ourselves, He probably doesn't exist anyway. I mean, think about, by example, what happens when you say no to your kids. Um, so often, as kids, we, we absolutize the moment. We say all sorts of untrue things about our parents' character, like, oh, you don't love me. You don't do anything nice for me. You're the worst. I hate you. And yet, in your mind as a parent, you're thinking, good grief. I just said no. You can't have that Kit Kat bar that Kroger put here in the checkout aisle so you get me to spend more money. <laughs> and don't we see, though, that that's often sometimes what we're doing to God. When things don't go how we expect We've become so fixated upon one thing, one thing we've wanted, one thing we've demanded. And when it doesn't happen, we spit in God's face, we start trashing his character in our heart, we forget his word, we think we're somehow going to hurt him by not talking to him anymore. And so we should all keep this part of the passion narrative stored very closely in our hearts. Because as we think about Christ's suffering and simulation in this way, we, we know God cares for us. We know he loves us. And so as we meditate on this this morning, we have to ask ourselves this Lord's Day, what do you want from God? And how do you respond when he does not do or say what you want or expect? And this is really a diagnostic question. I'm not saying, um, like, you know, think of God as the, the genie from Aladdin. You know, what do you want from God? And you get three wishes. But, and, and a lot of times, though, we won't even ask this question because we kind of Take the old JFK quote, and we're like, well, ask not what you want from God, but what God wants from you. And we'll kind of spiritualize our way 
out of asking this. But this question is really important. Because the tricky thing with our expectations is that they often go unsaid to others and even unknown to ourselves. I mean, I've learned that over and over again in marriage. I, um, I, growing up, my family, we had dinner at the same time, like every day. And I'm not usually home for dinner, just working in a restaurant. But when I am home, if it hits like five or six and dinner's not ready, I get really hangry. And there's not a Snickers bar big enough to satiate me at that point. And I, I'm not very pleasant. I'm ashamed and embarrassed to say. And suddenly then, my expectations, they're, they're right in front of me. And something that I should, have, I should have addressed or realized like this is petty is, is making a mess of my relationship with my wife. And that's why this question is so important, because something very similar and even more destructive can happen in our relationship with God. Our unsaid or unacknowledged expectations can be devastating. So if you're feeling discouraged in your faith, this question is for you. You may ask, you know, what is it that I'm expecting from God? Why am I discouraged? Is there something I was expecting that's now been blocked or or been, been denied to me. Maybe I didn't even realize I was expecting it. But as I start to ask this question, I, I, I come to see that. And then I, you have to ask yourself, well, is that thing biblical? Maybe there's a reason why God hasn't done this for me. And maybe you can't see that reason yet, but know that there is one. Or if you're on the other side of the fence, if you're feeling out Christianity, you're not sure if you believe in God, you're wondering if he exists, what expectations are guiding your inquiry? Because there is absolutely no such thing as true or totally objective when it comes to the human heart. And we do well to make sure that when we're coming to the gospel, as Cameron is pointing out, which this gospel, it has eternal implications. So the expectations that guide our reading of God's word, they've got to be up to the task. You know, are you sure that if, if you don't want to try to put your trust in Christ because it means you can't do something you want to do? Or if you don't want to obey Christ in this one way, are you sure that the thing you want to do can actually give you more joy or life than what is offered to you in Christ? Because when we have, that question is uncomfortable. I mean, that really, really bothers us and sets us off guard. But we've got to ask it because our expectations can so quickly lead us astray and lead us to spit in the face of, of what is just great blessing in Christ. And it's then worth us thinking about that this Lord's Day. But let's now uh, turn back to the text. We're going to pick up in verse 69, read to the end of the chapter, and see Jesus denied as we finish out this morning. So here again, God's word. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know what you mean. I do not know the man, I And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them. Your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. So remember the timeline, just a few hours before this happens, Jesus told Peter exactly what he was going to do. And of course, Peter vehemently protested and he said, Jesus, no, you've got me all wrong. Like, I'm not going to betray you like these other fellows. But I've always wondered then, so what was Peter thinking as his first servant girl comes up and says, you were with, you were with Jesus? Like, did he, did he, was he aware of the fact like this is what Jesus was talking about? Like, hey, this is the moment. This is what he was just saying a couple hours ago. 
Or maybe did he write it off as something that didn't really count? He's thinking, oh, this is just a servant girl. Like, if I were in there with Jesus right now, if I were part of the main attraction, like, I'd show them. Then I'd really, really stay loyal to Christ. But this, this doesn't really count. My moment's really coming. Of course, we don't know what Peter was thinking, but the way his sin gets worse and worse, the more this moment unravels, it gives us a really convicting picture of how we sin, too. I mean, look at how he responds to this, this first servant girl. She says, hey, you were with Jesus. He says, I don't know what you mean. Now, he did deny Christ, but it's a total dodge. He feigns ignorance. It's sort of like that first time you break a New Year's resolution not to eat candy or something. You're like, ah, it's fruit flavored. It's got like natural fruit juice in it or something. So that doesn't count, right? It's like, no, you, you totally just hate sugar. Sorry. And that, though, it seems funny and it seems light to us. And maybe Peter thought that. But that's so often how sin and, and quote unquote big sin starts. It's with one small compromise. One instance where we echo the fall and say, rules don't apply right now. They don't apply to this moment. Then that spills over into the next moment because as Peter starts to try to escape the scene and he's walking away, another servant girl stops him dead in his tracks and says the same thing. You were with Jesus. And this time he ups his game and he swears an oath and says, all right, I don't know the man. And notice how then one sin spirals into other sin. Because now he's breaking Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He's not letting his yes be yes and his no be no. He's swearing an oath. And so his sin is spreading. It's infecting all of his life. And then finally, as a small crowd claims that his accent gives him away, Peter doubles down and he invokes a curse on himself. And his denial of Christ leads him to call for his own destruction. That reveals the true nature of sin. It may taste sweet in the moment, but it, it always ends in death and destruction. And isn't it so ironic that here's Peter, before he had said that even if he had to die, he would never deny Christ. And then earlier in the passage we've been studying this morning, he's willing to make others die for Jesus, but he's not yet ready to die for Jesus. And now he's calling for his own death, but not at all because he's staying true to Christ. But he's calling for his own death as a sign that he did not know Jesus. He's calling for his death in the moment of denying Jesus. The tables have completely and utterly turned for him. And we can't overlook how Peter got to this point. He ignored Christ's clear warning. He relied upon himself instead. And the red flag, as we learned last week, went up in Gethsemane when he could not stay awake and pray with Christ. Then his devotional life became utterly deflated. And he set himself up for failure. And although he followed Christ to his hearing before Caiaphas, he followed only at a distance. And that's very telling, I think. So then when the moment of temptation came, it was too late. He was unprepared, and the cost was tremendous. Now, Mark Ross says, The means of grace, they're given to us so that we might grow spiritually and become strong. But how neglectful we are of these means. The fall of Peter should be a warning to all of us. He himself tells us that a vital, growing spiritual life is the best means to keep us from falling. And Ross, of course, is pointing to Second Peter there. The point is... That Peter had access to the means of grace. He was with Christ. Christ himself told him what was going to happen, but he ignored it. And it's not dissimilar with us. We, too, are, are so quick to, to just jettison the means of grace when life gets busy. The first thing that always goes is our daily Bible reading or our prayer or our worship or our rest on Sunday. And then before we know it, when temptation strikes, we are vastly unequipped. And we sin, we stumble, and then maybe we stumble again and again and again and again and again. And before we know it, we're just left standing amid this smoldering wreckage 
our spiritual life wondering, what have I done? How did I get here? And when that happens, we have to ask again, how do you respond when through your sin you deny Christ? Which way do you run? As we like to ask in our church. You run to the throne of grace or do you run away? You know, does your sin bother you? And then, if your sin bothers you, if you weep over your sin like Peter did, you've got to also ask why. Because for some of us, we're often more bothered by our sin because it reminds us that we're not perfect. We're more bothered by the fact that it means we messed up. We don't like messing up. We're worried about what other people are going to think. I mean, that's part of how Peter got here. Is he was worried about what these people were going to think about him. He was worried about what it would mean for his life. And so the reason that Peter was forgiven wasn't just that he wept bitterly over his sin. The reason he was forgiven is that when Christ called him back, he came running. He quite literally jumps out of a boat to get to Jesus as fast as he can. And so if we see nothing else from Peter's denial of Christ, we have to see this, that sin is mighty and it is not to be trifled with. We've been given the means of grace because we are in war. We need God's word. We need to commune with him day after day in prayer. We need each other. We need worship. We need the rest that the Sabbath gives us. And if you've ever wrestled with the same sin for any length of time, you know it can seem undefeatable. So you know we need all the help we can get from God. And no matter how mighty and big and just undefeatable your sin may seem today, take heart and know that Christ has overcome the world and he's overcome your sin. And that for Peter, this is not the end of the story. It's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, he actually doesn't mention Peter by name again. And as we wrap up this passage this morning, it's really uncomfortable. There's, there's not a silver lining in that. Everything just begs and screams for resolution. And yet we know from elsewhere, from John's gospel especially, that Peter will be restored. Christ will call him back. This is not the end of the story. And for some of us, our own hearts and souls are crying out in anguish over um, sins you've committed this past week or something deep in your past that you've never told anybody about. And the important thing to know is that no matter how through your sin you've denied Christ, Christ, not your sin, has the final say in your story. He is Lord. We and our sin are not. Our sin does not get to have the final say. Our betrayals, our lies, our denials, they're awful indeed. And we, we would do well to, to feel sorrow over them, to repent. We must repent. But Christ's friendship, his truthfulness, his forgiveness, they have the final say. They are what give us life. They are what identify us. So as we wrap up, we see then that Matthew 26, 47 through 75 teaches us that while we are masters of destruction in our relationships with God and neighbors, Christ is the Lord of reconciliation. And he has come to mend what we have so broken. We've broken a relationship with each other. We've broken our relationships with God. But Christ came and endured this betrayal and this scorn in order to bring us home to the Father. And while we are those who will lie to get what we want, Christ clung to the truth, even though it cost him everything. He clung to it unto death in order to get to us because we are what he wanted. And while we are quick to deny Jesus in the midst of suffering, Jesus endured the worst of suffering in order to be faithful to us. The story is not yet done. There's still more to come as we'll see in the coming weeks. And yet, all of this was so that Christ could call us unto himself and welcome us home into the family of God. And so, let us turn to him now and give thanks for such wonderful love. Oh, Father, we, we do come before you. And Lord, we confess that we are so quick to, to betray 
our relationships, either with you or with each other. Lord, we're so quick to, to manipulate or to lie or to get what we want. Lord, so often what we want is not you, and yet, Lord, you are what we should want. Because you are what can truly satisfy us. And you've given of yourself freely to us in Christ. Lord, we thank you that though we, we crumble so quickly, you are steadfast. You are the rock who bear us up amidst any kind of suffering. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Will we be a people of reconciliation? Will we, will we be a people, Lord, um, who speak the truth to one another in love, Lord, and who, who uh, are quick, Lord, to, to stand by one another's side? Lord, would we uh, just know the power of your spirit in our midst, Lord? Know that you are working in us to grow us. Make us disciples, Lord. Help us, God, to, to come, Lord, and to repent of sin that, that clings so closely, Lord, that your, the joy of your salvation would be fresh to us this morning. Lord, help us not to let another Lord's Day Sabbath go by without us reflecting on your word, reflecting on the way you've been speaking to us this morning. Oh God, would you continue to, to provide for us and to guide us this coming week. And again, we give you thanks that you love us so much that you, or Jesus, would endure such suffering on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.